Hey, Fairfax, before we continue with the service, we have just a few announcements for you. Number one, our Global 5K registration is officially open. And this year, we're partnering with one of our new global partners called Children of Promise. And their mission is to bring hope and wholeness to kids in need around the world. And our goal is to sponsor over 50 children by race day. You can learn more and sign up on our website. Now that Ash Wednesday is over, we're inviting you to join us as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday in a few intentional ways. One of the ways you can get involved is through our 40-day fill-up. We want to replenish our resource centers so that we can better love our neighbors and our community. You can go online to our website to participate. You can also subscribe to our 40-day Lenten devotional and receive daily prayers written by people right within our Fairfax Church family. You can sign up for that using the link below. And lastly, this week, we are beginning a new care group called A Season of Healing. And it's a group that's led by a professional counselor, and it's all designed to create space to help you begin your journey of healing no matter what you're going through. If you want to learn more about any of the things we talked about, you can go online to our events tab to learn more. Our Ash Wednesday service this past week was so impactful. Thank you to everyone who joined us in person and online. If you weren't able to make it, we want to give you a little feel of how special this service was, so check it out. We just celebrate that. That was an awesome service. I know not everyone uh, got a chance to be a part of that, but uh, whether you did or not, um, as we enter into these these 40 days of Lent moving toward Resurrection Sunday, um, the whole point of that is to just be intentional about trying to understand what it is that God is wanting to do specifically in our lives. You know, what are the things that, that have enslaved us in some way that are keeping us from experiencing uh, what God has created us to be? And uh, what are the things that God wants to uh, have in our lives that perhaps we are missing? So there's lots of resources. If you go on our website, um, you can see all the different resources we have for this journey together. And uh, as I was saying on Ash Wednesday, don't, don't waste the time. It, like, you'll never get this back. So Take advantage of this time to allow God to work um, in your life. Uh, I do want to say before I jump into the message, uh, just a word about next weekend, because next weekend, Maquette is going to be here from uh, Teach Haiti, and uh, if you remember when we did our Renovate campaign, we tithed off of the campaign. Uh, We raised about a million dollars for that, which meant that our tithe was $100,000 that we gave to Teach Haiti to rebuild homes. Uh, that were destroyed by the earthquake last year. And uh, 
Maquette is gonna be here next weekend. Give us a little update. We have been able, because of your generosity, we've been able to send the whole $100,000 down to Haiti. Can we just celebrate that? That's really cool. And... Uh, Person is in place that's going to oversee the building projects. Uh, we'll be able to know who the families are. We'll be able to get updates on that. And Maquette's gonna be here in person next weekend just to give a little update on, uh, on that and how it's gotten started. And if you wanna spend a little bit more time with her and find out a little bit more about Teach Haiti and just the uh, awesome ministry that it is, there's going to be uh, a lunch that takes place right after this service next weekend, after the 1115 service. And if you're interested in being part of that, go to the website. You can get signed up uh, for that. All right, so uh, it's been a minute since I've been up here and preaching a sermon. And it feels weird, to be quite honest. Like, I got really comfortable sitting basically in your seats. Uh, and we had such amazing communicators over the last two months that have really taken us to the throne of grace. And uh, Donna was asking, as I, as I got ready to leave today, Donna, my wife, she, um, she said, how are you feeling? And I said, actually, I'm kind of anxious, you know, because it's been long, a long time, and I just don't know how I feel or... I just haven't done this for uh, a while, and uh, but and I and I really didn't have any idea whether I would do this again or when I would do this again or how I would be able to do this again. So uh, to be able um, this weekend to be back and to be feeling good and to be able to just share God's word with you, I'm so stinking grateful for this and uh, awesome. So we're starting this series uh, that's gonna take us through the season of Lent all the way up to Easter, and it's called A Journey to the Resurrection. And a lot of times, Lenten series that are like journey-oriented or whatever, uh, oftentimes are called A Journey to the Cross. And I'm sure if I go back in some sermons that I preach, I preach some sermons or a series of sermons that's a journey to the cross. But Lent is really not a journey to the cross. That's really not the destination of Lent. It really is a journey to the resurrection. Uh, the cross is central, but the cross is not the ultimate destination. The ultimate destination is the resurrection. It's the, it's the resurrection that transforms the cross. It's the resurrection that transforms the cross from an instrument of despair to an instrument of hope. It's the cross that transforms, it's the resurrection that transforms the cross from an instrument of death to an instrument of life. Um, it's the cross that turns Bad Friday into Good Friday. Can I get an amen for that? Like the ultimate destination of Lent is this journey to life. It's this journey to the resurrection. A cross is a part of that, and we have to die to things. And Jesus had to die to experience the resurrection, but the ultimate end to this journey is not the cross, it's the resurrection. It is life. And we're gonna be using uh, the final eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew as our guide. And we're starting in Matthew 21. So we'll go Matthew 21 to Matthew 28. And Matthew 21 is Jesus' triumphal entry 
into Jerusalem. It's what's also called Palm Sunday. Now, I know that for some of you, I, I would say even for those of you that don't know anything about the church calendar, like some of you come from a liturgical background and you know the church calendar and you know that Palm Sunday is not this Sunday. Like Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. And I would say even if you don't know anything about the church calendar, like that's the one thing you know is that you know that Easter is, 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 is where it is and that Palm Sunday is always, always, always the Sunday before Easter. So for those of you that like are a little disturbed by the fact that we're talking about Palm Sunday and talking about Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, um, it'll be okay, okay? Just, I just wanna say it'll be okay that take a breath. Uh, God is still on his throne. God is still in control. And uh, we're gonna talk about the triumphal entry. Now, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, when he rode into Jerusalem, he did it on a very unusual mode of transportation. It was a baby donkey. We're gonna talk about that later. So I thought, just as a reminder of that, that today I would ride into like the sanctuary, ride onto the stage, uh, also on an unusual mode of transportation. So is that okay if I do that? So, um, so just give me a minute, and um, I want to ride on on just a little unusual mode of transportation. For a couple reasons. One, like I said, Jesus rode in on an unusual, actually Jesus rode in on a donkey, I rode in on a hog. So I just thought <laughs> that was appropriate. I know some of you are booing that. It gets worse today. I just want you to know, just give you a little heads up. Uh, but the other reason I want to do it is that this is the last time I'll actually be able to do it, that um, I'm, I'm getting ready to pass the Harley on to kind of a next generation of of, uh, of Harley riders, and uh, I've had it for 13 years. It's been an amazing season. I'm gonna talk a little bit later about how, how I got that. Some of you know the story. Some of you maybe have never heard that amazing, amazing story. But I got it in 2009. I've had it for 13 years, and, uh, and I'm, I'm ready to kind of move into uh, a new season. Actually, um, you know, they say with, with motorcyclists that it's not... It's not if you will put the bike down at some point, uh, it's when you will put the bike down. And so far I've had it for 13 years and have not, if I make it through today, like I have not yet put it down, which I'm really, really thankful for because it's kind of, it weighs 800 pounds. It's like driving a refrigerator, okay? It's like so super heavy. And uh, 
So it's been awesome to have it. Uh, it's been a great season these last 13 years being able to write it, but going to be passing it on to some folks that are going to be able to write it uh, more uh, than I have been able to do that, and I'm really excited uh, about that. All right, so let's talk about this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and I want to look at the text, which is Matthew 21, starts in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to that. We'll have the verses up on the screen, but let me just, let's read this together. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there with her colt by her, basically baby donkey. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him what, that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them. And Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And while others cut branches from trees, and we know from the Gospel of John, it was palm branches. They cut branches from trees and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. God, we just are so thankful for your word, and we pray today that you will take your word and, um, and what is said, and that you will infuse it with the power of your Holy Spirit and do whatever it is that you wanna do in our lives. You know the agenda that, that you want in us. You know what we're dealing with. You know the questions that we have, the concerns we have, the things that we are facing. And Lord, we pray that somehow your spirit will take one message, one thought, one text, and we'll apply it to each of our hearts in ways that will minister to us and change us and transform us. In the name of Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right. So there's three things I want to challenge you with that grow out of this text uh, today. The first one is this. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to say yes to all of Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to say yes to, to all of Jesus. As you read through the Gospels, one of the things that you notice is how often Jesus performs a miracle. He raises someone from the dead or he... Uh, cast out demons, or he heals someone, or whatever it is, and he tells people, don't tell anyone, which has always been kind of a confusing passage to me. Like, why would Jesus say, don't tell anyone, because you would think he would want everyone to know about all the miracles that he's performing? And there's lots of theories about why Jesus did that, but the one that especially resonates with me has to do with Jesus' sense of timing. You know, Jesus had that, Jesus was always talking about the fullness of time. And it wasn't like, you know, a certain time, it was like the right time. And that everything that Jesus did was always in the fullness of time. That everything he did was always according to God's design and God's plan. And Jesus knew that the more the news spread about the miracles that he was performing, the more pressure that that put on the religious and civil leaders, especially ones in the capital city of Jerusalem, to do everything that they could to stop him. 
And, and, and Jesus didn't want to, it's not that Jesus was not wanting to deal with that confrontation. He was ready to deal with that confrontation, but in the fullness of time, like at the right time. He didn't want to deal with that confrontation before he was able to accomplish everything else that he was here on earth to accomplish. So he wanted to deal with that confrontation in the fullness of time, in the right time. And that's probably one of the reasons why that oftentimes when he performed miracles, he you know, said, don't, don't tell anyone this. It's probably one of the reasons why he performed most of those miracles and lived out most of his ministry in the area of Galilee, which was northern Palestine, which was pretty far from the capital city, kind of out of the way because it wasn't the fullness of time yet to deal with the confrontation he knew he was going to deal with when the claims of who he is and the miracles that he performed and who he claimed to be, the confrontation that he knew that it would bring. But now comes this amazing scene because all of that changes. And Jesus, who has for years been coming to Jerusalem in this kind of annual pilgrimage for the Passover, but now he doesn't walk into Jerusalem like he had done all of those other years. Now he rides into Jerusalem like a conquering king. And there's this, it creates this amazing scene where where all of the people, there's all these people that are in Jerusalem for the Passover and they've already arrived. And when they hear that Jesus is coming and that he's riding into Jerusalem like a conquering king, they all come out of the city to greet him. And along with Jesus are all of this other a, a mass of humanity that's traveling with him to Jerusalem. And there's this kind of huge massive humanity that forms around Jesus as he rides into the city and people take off their cloaks and put it before Jesus and they cut down these palm branches and wave them and place these palm branches on the, the road which kind of creates this, this, this palm branch carpet that Jesus rides into the city on. And all of the people are shouting, Hosanna. Now Hosanna is not just some churchy sounding cheer, right? That it's not just it's not just saying hooray for Jesus, hooray for Jesus. Like that's not what that's the way sometimes we think about it and we say it, but that's really it's not they they weren't saying hooray for Jesus. Oh, we're so glad Jesus, hooray for Jesus. No, hosanna basically means save us. So when they are crying out hosanna to the son of David, they are really saying Save us, son of David. Save us, Messiah. Save us, O King. It's a clear declaration of who Jesus is. And then after Jesus enters the city, you remember what he does? As soon as he enters the city, he goes to the temple and he, he throws out all the money changers and he condemns them for what they're doing because there is this unjust commerce that is taking place where they're taking advantage of the poor and they're replacing authentic worship with unjust commerce. And he, he turns over all the money changers tables. He, he, he rearranges all of the furniture in the temple. And then he says, this should not be happening in my house. This is my house. And this should not be happening in my house. 
Now, the only person that has the right to walk into a house, think about it, and start rearranging the furniture is the owner of the house. Like, it would be really weird if someone came over to your house, just walked in and start rearranging the furniture. Like, that would be, that would be weird. If someone did that in my house, I'd probably go, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. My wife would say, get out. Like, like we're the only ones that have the right to rearrange the furniture. You know, like, the only one that has the right to do that is the owner of the house. And so when Jesus declares, when he calls the temple my house and starts rearranging the furniture, it's pretty clear who he's claiming to be. He's declaring to everyone, the religious leaders, the civil leaders, everyone, I'm the king of kings. I'm the, I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting on for all of these centuries. I'm the one that is gonna save you. And basically, by declaring that he is king, Jesus is saying to them, crown me or kill me. Like he knows that's the decision now. Like he's gone through all of his ministry and he's kind of stayed away from kind of this confrontation. But now in the fullness of time is the declaration to all the religious leaders in the capital city, to all of the civil leaders in the capital city. In essence, he is saying, yeah, I'm king and you've got to do something, something with that. You gotta either crown me as king or kill me. Like that is this decision that you are now facing. And in a sense, that's what Jesus calls all of us to. Like in a sense, Jesus says that to all of us. Crown me or kill me. In other words, either crown me by embracing me as your Lord, as your king, as your savior, or kill me by creating some version of me that you're more comfortable with. A lot of people, e even people in the church, and I've done this a time, and you've probably done this a time, maybe you're doing this even now. Like a lot of people have killed the biblical Jesus. He's not king, he's not Lord, he's not someone who demands anything from us. He, he's not someone that we have to obey. He's someone that is safe and easy to control. He, he's, not the, he's not the road king, Jesus. He, he's not the, you know, the powerful, exciting, a little bit dangerous Jesus. Like he's not the road king, Jesus. He's the, he's the motor scooter, Jesus. He's like, there's nothing, like, motor scooter's like safe and easy to control and boring, but, and sometimes that's what we turn Jesus into. Like, he's not the road king Jesus, he's like the motor scooter Jesus. And sometimes we try to follow Jesus by saying yes to just part of Jesus. But you can't do that. If you're gonna say yes to Jesus, you have to say yes to all of Jesus. Like you can't say yes to Jesus as comforter and not as king. You can't say yes to Jesus as savior and not as Lord. You can't say yes to Jesus as miracle worker and not as Christ. Like when you say yes to Jesus, you have to say yes to all of Jesus. You either crown him or you kill him. Second thing I wanna challenge you with is this. When you pray, pray boldly, but pray humbly. 
In many ways, the triumphal entry is a parable of this lifelong tension that exists for most of us between what we want from God and what God actually wants to provide for us, between what we think we need in any given moment and what God knows that we need. See, the people in the crowd that day that were shouting Hosanna and waving the palm branches and putting their cloaks on the ground for him to travel across, and they were, what they were looking for was a liberator from Rome. They wanted Jesus to be the leader who was gonna lead a revolution and throw out this occupying power. When they were shouting Hosanna, when they were shouting for Jesus to save them, they were looking for a military salvation. They were looking for a political salvation. That's who they thought Jesus was. That's what they thought Jesus had come to do. But Jesus has not come to save them from Rome. Jesus had come to do something way more important than that. He had come to save them from their sins. He had come to save them from themselves. And it's just another example that that what we want God to provide for us is not always a reflection of what God wants to provide, and it's not always a reflection of our deepest needs. That's why when we pray, we need to pray with a spirit of humility, knowing that God has a perspective that, that we don't have. Now, that doesn't mean that we should not pray bold prayers. The Psalms, which is filled with prayers, a book of prayers, is filled with bold prayers. Let me just remind you of a few of them, and I could read so many today. Psalm 30, O Lord, my healing God, I cried out for a miracle, and you healed me. You brought me back from the brink of death, from the depths below. Now here I am, alive and well and fully restored. That's a bold prayer. That's a bold prayer. God, you healed me. You, you brought me back. You restored me. Psalm 4, answer me when I call you. That's bold in and of itself. Like, God, I'm talking to you, God. Like, answer me. Answer me when I call you. Oh, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Like, you know what I'm going through. You know the stress that I'm feeling. Like, give me relief from all of that. Be merciful to me. Hear my prayer. That's a bold, bold prayer. Psalm 130. Oh, Lord, from the depths of despair, I cry for your help. Hear me. Answer me. Help me. Like, that's a bold prayer. Jesus, listen to me. I have something that I need. Hear me, answer me, help me. Lord, if you keep in mind our sins, then who can ever get an answer to his prayers? But you forgive, what an awesome thing that is. And then Psalm 70, hasten, O God, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to me. May those who seek my life be put to shame and confusion. May all those who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. Like, take care of my enemies. Like, wipe out my enemies. Like, push them back. So don't be afraid, afraid to pray bold prayers. God wants you to pray bold prayers. He wants you to cry out for things that you desperately want to see happen. And don't be afraid 
that your prayers are too bold. Don't be afraid that you're asking too much. And don't be afraid that you're praying the wrong thing. Just because God has a perspective that you don't have doesn't mean that you should not pray bold prayers. Like David, here's the thing about God. We pray these bold prayers. God, God's gonna sort it out. Don't worry about that. Like David prayed lots of prayers, really graphic prayers about what he wanted God to do to his enemies. Like things if you said out loud in your small group, they would wonder if you were a Christian or not. Like they would wonder like, what's wrong with this person, you know? Like David prayed some prayers that were so graphic about what he wanted God to do to his enemies that God didn't always answer exactly the way that David asked for. It would have wiped out the whole earth, you know, basically. And so, so God will sort all of that out. So don't worry that you're praying too bold of a prayer. Don't worry that you're praying too big of a prayer. Don't worry that you're praying the wrong prayer and that you need to like, no, don't worry. God will sort that out. Pray big, bold prayers. Pray boldly, but also pray humbly. Pray knowing that God has a perspective that you don't have. Pray knowing that, that you, may, you may know what you want, but that doesn't always mean that you know what you need. It's kind of like a counselor when you go to a counselor. And if it's a good counselor, that one of the things that you'll get asked early on is like, what's the issue? Like, why are you here? What's the issue that's going on? And oftentimes what will happen is that you'll share what you think is the issue. And then as you process and talk and dig a little deeper and deal with everything that's happening and deal with some things in your past and all that, that oftentimes you'll find that what was the issue that you thought was the issue or what they oftentimes call uh, the presenting issue is not the real issue, that there are some deeper issues, some other stuff that needs to get unpacked. There's some other stuff that needs to get dealt with. There's some other stuff that needs to get healed, that the very process of kind of going through that leads you to find out that what you thought was the main issue is not really the main issue, that there's something deeper than that. And that's why we need to pray both boldly but also humbly. Like that's the kind of prayer that Paul prayed when he was dealing with his thorn in the flesh. Remember that prayer where he's dealing with this physical stuff. We don't know what it was, but it was some physical stuff. It was causing him pain. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, Paul wanted God to remove the pain and make him strong again. And God said, in this instance, what you need is the power to thrive in the midst of your weakness. Paul said, I want you to make me strong again and take away the pain. And God said, in this instance, what you need is my grace and power to be able to thrive even in the midst of your weakness. Now, I've been praying some really, really bold prayers recently. And many of you have been praying some really bold prayers 
on my behalf, and I am so thankful for that. Please keep praying those bold prayers because I've already seen God answer so many of those bold prayers because sometimes, and this is the thing that you gotta look at the you got to look at all of Scripture. You just can't take one text and kind of make that the text. You have to look at the whole counsel of God. And when you look at the whole counsel of God, you realize that sometimes God wants to take away the thorn in the flesh. That sometimes God does want to remove the pain and make us strong again. But even when that doesn't happen or it doesn't happen the way that we want it to happen or in the timing that we want it to happen, God is still at work, that he is at work filling us with the power that we need to thrive even in the midst of our weakness, all of which means that no matter what happens in your life, this is like the point, whatever happens in your life, whatever is going on in your life. It means that God has your back, that you can trust God, that you can rest in God, that God is at work, even if he's not at work in the way that you thought he'd be at work, that God is at work, that God has your back. You can trust him. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to abandon you. Paul says it this way. It's my favorite passage, I think, in Scripture. In all these things, talking about all of these struggles and all of this difficulty, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced. Think about that. We are more than conquerors even in the midst of the struggles that we are facing, that in Christ we are more than conquerors. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, whatever the future brings, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen for that? And here's the deal. If you really believe that, if you really internalize that, you will live a less anxious life. If you really believe that, if you really internalize that, you will sleep better at night. You will be able to rest in the presence of God because you can rest in a love that nothing, 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 nothing will ever separate you from. Absolutely nothing will ever separate you from. So pray big, bold prayers. Pray bold prayers for yourself. Pray bold prayers for your family, for your friends, for your church, for your nation, for the world. Pray big, bold prayers, but pray them with a spirit of humility, knowing that God is bigger than your prayers, and that no matter what happens, you are, as Paul says, more than conquerors through him who loves us. Third challenge is this. If you want to experience the fullness of God's salvation, you have to confess your vices instead of trusting your virtues. 
It's one of the things that we spent some time reflecting on at the Ash Wednesday service that I think is so important in what the Lenten season is all about. That the fullness of God's salvation is not found in trusting our virtues. It's in confessing and repenting of our vices, our sins. That that's actually what allows us to then take up our virtues is when we are able to own and name and confess and repent of our sins. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, as I said, like a conquering king. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the mode of transportation was not particularly king-like. Typically when a king or a conquering general would ride into a city, they would ride on a huge white horse, like something that demonstrated power, something that put the king above everyone else in the crowd. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode on the colt, the colt of a donkey, which means basically a baby donkey. And, and here's the thing where the pictures of all of this just don't, I don't think do it justice, is that I think by Jesus' design, it's, it's satirical, it's comical. Like just the very thought of Jesus, a grown man, riding on a baby, not just a donkey, which is not that big, but a baby donkey. Like his feet, like he would have been like having to walk, like his feet would have been dragging along the ground. He would have been bigger than the thing that he was riding on. Like it's this comical scene of Jesus riding in. He's riding in, he's the king, but he's riding in on this little baby donkey. Why? Because Jesus, I think, is wanting to make a point. He's making the point that he's king, but he's a different kind of king. Stanley Hauerwas, in his commentary on Matthew, describes it this way. The triumphal entry is an event that parodies, that parodies the entry of kings and armies. Victors in battle do not ride into their capital cities riding asses, but fearsome horses. That's the only time I could say that word is quoting someone else. <laughs> but this king does not and will not triumph through the force of arms. In other words, Jesus came to rule, but not by taking up power, but by laying down power. Jesus came to rule, not by killing, but by dying. Like the history of the world, and we're seeing it lived out once again, tragically, in the Ukraine. But this is the history of the world, that the pursuit of power is, is the, or the pursuit of, of, of being in control of ruling is the pursuit of power, not the laying down power. Like ruling is about killing, not dying. And Jesus came to rule, but he didn't come to rule by taking up power, but by laying down power. He didn't come to rule by killing, but by giving his life and laying down his life. That's how Jesus came to rule. And one of the biggest things that, that we have, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, like we have to, this is what Ash Wednesday was all about. We have to be willing to die to things too. And one of the biggest things that we have to die to is the idea that if we live 
good enough lives that we can somehow earn our salvation, that if we have enough virtues in our life that we can somehow earn our salvation. But we are not saved by trusting our virtues. We are saved by confessing and repenting of our vices, of our sins, because when we confess and repent, we open ourselves up to God's grace. Some of you um, know the story of how I got this bike uh, 13 years ago, 2009. I've always kind of wanted to have a Harley Davidson from when I was a young adult. And, um, but just never was able to do that. They're, they're very expensive and just never had the money really to do it. And, and uh, so I, I was kind of a, a Harley wannabe. And, um, and I kind of thought that was kind of what it would be. In fact, when I was 40, um, I put in um, an order for a Harley. Back then, you had to put in an order, put in your deposit, and then wait nine months before it arrived. I'm not going to make any comparison to pregnancy there because I'll offend like everyone in this congregation. Uh, but that's what you had to do. You put in your deposit, and because they were in such demand, you had to wait nine months until you know the the motorcycle got there. So I put in my deposit, and I waited nine months, and and the and my bike showed up and. They called from the dealership. They said, hey, your bike is here. And I went out and looked at it and sat on it and all that. And, and I just couldn't, I couldn't take possession of it. I just felt like at that point that it was just uh, too much money spent on me. And it could be spent in other ways for the family and all of that. And so I gave back to the, or I got back the deposit and, I, and they sold it to someone else. And again, I just thought probably I was just always going to kind of be a Harley wannabe and all of that until 2009. In 2009, um, I got a call from uh, the Harley-Davidson dealership, Patriot Harley-Davidson on Lee Highway. It's right around the corner from our house. And they said, uh, hey, someone uh, wants to buy you a, uh, a helmet and a jacket. And uh, because they know you love Harleys and everything and thought that would be uh, great. And so um, I, they said, all you have to do is come down and, and claim it and get it. And so uh, a few days went by, and uh, I finally was on my way back home and, and uh, stopped in to the dealership, and I, I said, hey, I'm Rod Stafford, and they said, do you have a helmet that someone wanted to, to buy for me, which is so generous, and a jacket, and, and they said, oh, yeah, uh, we're so glad that you're here and everything, and immediately goes into salesman mode, and, and it's just like, I think he just thinks he's got a ringer. He's got a sucker, you know. In fact, I got to thinking that maybe they were the ones that said you can have a helmet and a jacket. Like, I thought, well, that's a pretty good deal. You know, you, get a, you give away a helmet and a jacket and you sell a, you know, really, really expensive motorcycle. And so, uh, so anyway, they go into salesman mode and they start, they go, what, you know, what kind of, do you like Harleys and what, what kind do you like? And I say, oh yeah, I love Harleys. And, and I'm just feeding right into the narrative, you know, and Say, what kind do you like? So I love Road Kings. And so you start, oh, we got all this new line of Road Kings and start showing me all the Road Kings and, and I'm sitting on them and he can tell, he can tell what's happening. He can tell he's got a sale, you know. And uh, so I just keep trying. Finally, I get to this one. And, uh, you know, I, I, get on the, I, I get on this thing and, and uh, put the kickstand up and, and uh, just sit here. And he goes, you like this one, don't you? And, and I said, yeah, I, I really do. 
Um, but I can't, you know, I can't, I can't buy it. And he goes, but you really like it, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do like it. I like this is, like this would be the bike I would get because I love it. It looks like a 57 Chevy with the color scheme and all of that. It's just like really, really awesome. And, uh, and I'm thinking he's getting ready to kind of close the deal. And uh, he says, well, congratulations. You're the owner of a brand new Harley Davidson Road King. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, someone um, has bought this and wants you to have whatever, whatever, in fact, what he said was, whatever motorcycle in the shop you want, they said, get it for him. And put on whatever accessories. And if you know anything about accessories, like you can spend as much money on the accessories as on the bikes, whatever accessories that you want, uh, you can put on it. And I was just dumbfounded. And uh, I remember that I uh, got off the bike and in the shop was uh, a guy in our church that I thought probably had the resources to, you know, buy a Harley. And I thought, oh, well, that's what a coincidence that he just happens to be here, right, as I'm <laughs> like, you know, on the bike and and, uh, and so I, I just went up and threw my arms around him and was like giving him just this huge hug. And uh, the guy from the bike shop was behind him uh, where he couldn't see him going, that's not the guy. That's not the guy. And uh, so it was just like, well, yeah, he wouldn't know I would have been here. I just stopped by, you know, all of that. And then the reality was that I, I still don't know who gave me the bike. Uh, just in terms of like monetary, one of the biggest acts of grace that I've ever experienced. And, and they, didn't, they didn't want me to know who it was. And the, <laughs> the dealership like was sworn to secrecy. I'm not kidding, man. It's like they should get top-level clearance with the government. <laughs> like they have, I've tried to, you know, and I pretend I'm someone, like I try to pretend I'm the guy that gave it, you know, like, hey, I'm the guy that gave the bike, and, uh, and how did you write my name on the form? I just, uh, I mean, exactly, how did you write my name on the form, you know? And like nothing worked, and so I still don't know. And I remember uh, getting home that day, going into my office, and on my filing cabinet um, is this little jar that I think someone had given me because they knew I wanted a Harley. And it's a little jar that on the outside of the jar it says Harley Fund. And, uh, and so I had been like putting my loose change like in this, like a Harley piggy bank, right? And uh, I, I sat there and was looking at that and all of a sudden, I just started to cry. Because it was like, of course, in light of this huge act of grace, how ridiculous this little Harley piggy bank looks. Um, 
as an effort to buy what I never could buy. And for me, 13 years ago, and it's probably one of the reasons that the bike has been so special, is that for me, it has always represented and will continue to represent just grace. And how ridiculous, how comical, how silly it is to somehow think that through our righteousness or our goodness or our virtues that we could somehow earn God's salvation. The Bible says that even our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. And that doesn't mean that our righteousness doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that our virtues don't matter. It just means that if we are going to experience the fullness of God's salvation, that it's not going to be entrusting our virtues. It's going to be in confessing our sins, of being honest with, about the things that are keeping us from experiencing the life that God has created us to experience. And in confessing them and repenting of them to be set free to live out those virtues and to live out your best life, the life that God wants for you. That's why the Lenten season is not a season of sadness. The Lenten season is a, is a season of freedom. It's a season of being set free from the things that, that enslave us and experience the, experiencing the forgiveness of God and the grace of the grace of God that you could never earn. God, we're so thankful for what you have done for us in your graciousness, the price you have paid by dying for us on the cross and paying for our sins. Lord, we confess when at times we have been hesitant to confess our, our sins. We have been hesitant to turn from our sins that we, have, that we have leaned in somehow to our righteousness thinking that it can somehow earn your salvation, Lord. We confess that. We lay that down. We die to that. And we say, Hosanna. Hosanna to the one who saves Hosanna to the one who has set us free. Hosanna to the, to the grace that has been given to us that we could never, ever earn. We give you thanks. In the name of Christ, the gracious one, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand together as we worship?